0: Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 190, recorded Monday, October 31st, 2022. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, my travel tech stack and imbibing for introverts. So, hey, happy Halloween. Coming to you from the Travel Commons Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Finally got my body back on Central Time after three weeks in Europe that started in split Croatia and then ran up the Italian Peninsula, Amalfi Coast, Naples, Rome, Florence, and then back down to Rome to fly home. And for trip with about a dozen points of failure between all the flights and the trains and the Airbnbs... It all ended up going pretty smoothly, except for the last leg, the Newark to Nashville flight home, where United somehow couldn't manage to get our luggage on our plane. But by then, honestly, it wasn't critical, just suitcases of dirty clothes and some bottles of wine and limoncello, which was the reason I ended up having to check the bag in the first place. And United delivered them to us the next afternoon, just in time for us to start doing laundry. Annoying, yes, but not much more. Which, after a summer of travel horror stories about cancelled flights, lost luggage, hours-long security lines, all this stuff that fed into the last episode on top tips to avoid travel chaos, I chalked it up to good luck and clean living or, actually, what was probably more likely the explanation. The airlines and the airports are finally getting on the other side of the surprise snapback in leisure travel that happened been during a very tight labor market through Nashville, O'Hare, Frankfurt, and even the split airport, five-minute security lines at most, and on-time flights. In Italy, all our trains were on time, and after all that smooth travel, it wasn't until our last day for our flight home that we got pulled up short. We walked into Terminal 3 at Rome's Fumicino Airport and ran smack into a huge line But it took us a moment to figure out that, hey, that line wasn't for us. It was a check-in line for Air Canada, which seemed kind of weird. But no matter, we didn't have to stand in it. The next line, though, we did. The separate security line for all the direct flights back to the U.S. Now, we've talked in the past about how, post-9-11, direct international flights to the U.S. tend to be segregated from the rest of the flights and put at the far end of departure terminals. That I'm used to. This, though, was the first time I'd seen a U.S.-only security line. And on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m., when everyone is there for that 10.30 to 11 a.m. bank of flights to the U.S., it tailed back almost the length of the terminal. But it kept moving. And when we made it up to the security area, we could see that they had every screening station manned and operational. We got through security and passport control in less than a half hour. Not world class timing, but nowhere near the summer horror stories. Now, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised at that U.S. security line because every place we went in Italy was jammed, crowded, and mostly with Americans. It was revenge travel in action. I asked a few guys, bartenders, shop owners, shuttle drivers, how these October crowds compared to pre-pandemic loads. It's insane, was the consensus, and I could feel it wearing on them. And even though all these travelers were giving these guys money, their patience seemed to be getting, I don't know, a little thin. Last year, last October, when we were in Italy and Puglia and Sicily, these same sort of folks were saying, welcome, we're so glad travelers are back. This year, I think it's a little bit more like, when are you travelers going back, home? So following up, I'm, I'm going to hold my thoughts about Croatia and Italy, that trip for the next episode, do one of my sort of stream of consciousness notes on a location topic. But I do want to follow up here on a couple of things from the last episode. First up is last episode's eSIM rant, because through watching my travel companions in Italy and Croatia, and then also texting with Alan Marco, a longtime Travel Commons contributor, I sort of refined that rant, getting it down to two decision points around eSIMs versus physical SIMs. First, how much data do you expect to use? Now, if you're out of the U.S. for a week or less, staying in a place with good wife fi and you can wait until the end of the day to do all your social media posting you could probably be good with five gigabytes of data which gets you under t-mobile's non-throttled international data cap which is actually what a couple of the folks traveling with me did it gets you way under google fi's 50 gigabyte cap and it probably also fits into, say, a 15 to $20 eSIM from someone like Allosim or Aerolo. It's, quite honestly, it's the low-hassle solution. But for a longer stay, like this three-weeker that I just did, or if you're fully invested in building Instagram stories on the fly, like my wife is... 5 gigabytes just isn't going to cut it. Now, I reset my iPhone data stats on the flight to Frankfurt and then looked at them as we were taxiing out to the runway in Rome. I used 77 gigabytes of data. Now, having said that... 11 gigabytes was from hotspotting because the Wi-Fi in our Florence Airbnb was pretty useless. But even pulling that out, 66 gigabytes is still a whack load of data, which is probably why I didn't really pay any attention to my data usage, because the Telecom Italia plan I was on gave me 600 gigabytes of 5G data for 15 bucks, essentially unlimited data. So while my T-Mobile using companions were scrounging for a bar's Wi-Fi password to do their untapped check-ins, I was, I don't know, uploading pictures and refreshing my podcasts just on the fly. Now, the second decision point you hit then is, do you need to make regular phone calls? Do you need a local number? This is more and more of an edge case with people primarily texting. And when there's a specific need for a voice call, people can ring up through WhatsApp or Telegram. But on this trip, I got us last-minute tables at a couple of good restaurants because I could call those restaurants over the regular phone network, something I couldn't have done with a data-only eSIM. Now, I've also run into the need for a local number when trying to register or create an account for an online service. My telecom Italia SIM also came with a local Italian number and also unlimited voice minutes. So while this trip sharpened up my thinking, my conclusions... They haven't changed. Now, I know I'm an edge case. I don't want to have to think about data consumption and I want local phone service. But until the in-country wireless carriers offer the same prepaid plans on eSIMs that they do on physical SIMs, I'm keeping my phone with the SIM tray and that straightened out paper clip that I use to pop it open. Now, the second follow-up I wanted to do was to follow up on Kendra Kroll's travel tip about knowing the names of cities in the local vernacular. Now, Kendra in the last episode talked about people missing their train stop because they didn't realize that Florence, in Italian, is Firenze. So, riding the train from Rome, Roma, to Florence... Firenze, I was on the lookout for this. Now, all the train tickets that I had used Italian city names, Roma, Napoli, Firenze. but the signs on the platforms of the Florence train station said Florence. Indeed, the real confusion wasn't Florence versus Firenze, but which Florence train station to get off at. My group thought we had a direct train from downtown Rome, Roma Termini, to the downtown Florence station, Firenze Santa Maria Novella. So when the train stopped at a station with Florence in the sign, they all scrambled to get their bags and head for the station, which would have left them hanging around in a suburban parking lot figuring out how to get a ride downtown to where we were. So not only know the name of the city in the vernacular, know the full station name of your stop. Now, I mentioned a little earlier that the first leg of my trip was from Nashville to O'Hare, and I was kind of surprised to realize that it was my first time in O'Hare in 10 months since returning from the U.K. last November. Prior to moving down here to Nashville in July, I'd been flying southwest out of Midway, easier to get to from where I lived, and Southwest just fit my travel plans better. So, as a welcome back, I got the full O'Hare experience, landing on the far north runway, which feels like it's just short of the Wisconsin state line, then with the requisite 20-minute taxi to get within sight of the terminal, then, just as you think you're almost there, the plane stops across the road from the terminal and waits, I don't know, maybe 5-7 minutes for a gate to open up. Then, once we get moving again, we take the scenic route past all the American planes in Terminal 3, the Delta planes in Terminal 2, till we finally get to the United Terminal in Terminal 1. All told, at least 30 minutes from tires hitting the runway to the door opening and the agent saying, Welcome to O'Hare. Yeah, right. It's just so great to be back. In another great-to-be-back things, Irene and I used Lyft for the first time in forever to get home from the Nashville airport. The wait time and the price were much lower than Uber, which is weird because, you know, I don't know, I'd think by now the ride-sharing market would be a bit more price-efficient. But anyhow, Lyft is now so excited to see me resurface in Nashville that the app is flooding my phone with notifications of ride offers and suggestions for things. Things to do. Three days of this was enough to drive me into the hell that the iPhone settings menu has become to figure out just how to shut them up. Probably not the behavior Lyft was trying to prompt, but I don't know. There you go. And here you go. If you've got any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants... Always rants, the voice of the traveler. Send them along to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at TravelCommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to MPCock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram accounts. Or you can always go old school, way old school, and post your comments on the website at TravelCommons.com. The first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is my travel tech stack. Back to that problematic last leg of our trip, the flight home to Nashville from Newark. I knew we had a lagging luggage problem even before we left the ground, courtesy of the latest addition to my travel tech stack. I'd bought Apple AirTags just for this reason, to track our luggage. When I had to check my bag on the Voiling flight from Split to Rome, I could see on my iPhone's Find My app that my bag was on the plane. Indeed, it looked like it was almost right underneath me. But in Newark, my bag never left the terminal. Irene checked her app, same thing. As we taxied out, I took a screenshot showing the growing distance between me on the plane and my bag left behind at the terminal and tweeted it out to United saying, Well, I guess I won't be seeing my luggage at Nashville. As I said earlier, I was pretty annoyed with United, but at least the air tag saved me the 30 minutes of suspense, you know, watching all the other bags come out and then the belt stopping and me realizing my bag's not here. Instead, we skipped all that, went straight to the baggage service agent, filled out our report, and then headed home. And then waking up the next morning, I could see that our bags had made it on the late flight from Newark and then could see them on the delivery truck heading to our flat. Saved a lot of agita. It got me thinking back six, seven years ago to that first wave of smart luggage. Blue Smart, Away. I bought a Blue Smart bag off their Indiegogo campaign back then. And those bags also let you track their location, along with being able to charge your phone uh, for about two years until the airlines banned them, or at least the ones with non-removable batteries. Those travel use cases haven't changed, where's my bag, and I need to recharge my phone so I can rebook this canceled flight, but the tech has moved on, replacing the smart bag with air tags or tile trackers and a 10,000 mAh battery pack. Longtime listener and Twitter follower Abe Froman pinged me during my summer move podcast pause with... Question for the next podcast. Are there any new devices or apps that you're using for travel? Which is what got me spelunking through my travel tech stack, which then turned into a stroll through my past What's in My Briefcase episodes. And what struck me was, other than the AirTags and a small phone tripod for video calls, it hasn't been what I've added to my kit as much as what I've been able to take away. The consolidation to HDMI for video seems to be just about done, and that's let me drop all the VGA cables and dongles that I used to carry around, I don't know, just in case I ran into an old conference room projector or an old hotel TV. The slow and still-in-progress consolidation to USB-C power supplies has let me do some subtraction by addition, dropping my MacBook Air power supply and an old dual USB-A charger for a single charger that's smaller than either of them. A 100-watt gallium nitride charger that can charge my laptop, my phone, and my headphones all at once. Indeed, the only reason I still carry an old Apple USB-A to lightning cord is for plugging into charge. Charging ports on older rental cars. I'm finding the newer ones are also making the transition to USB C. But the subtraction thing doesn't always work. Last year, when we were traveling to Italy, Puglia, and Sicily for a couple of weeks, I wanted to leave my laptop home and run everything off my 8 inch Samsung tablet. And that wouldn't have been a problem except for a couple of programs that I run on my office PC, and I didn't want to have to migrate to their cloud versions just for the trip. So instead, I used Amazon Workspaces to set up a PC in the cloud. Uh, I have to tell you that I'm not quite sure why I thought this would be easier. The Amazon setup was let's say, less than straightforward, but I got it to work and was able to run what I needed to off my tablet, albeit a little bit slower than usual. Getting ready for this last trip, I thought about it again. Do I leave the laptop at home? Then I remembered the time sync the Amazon setup was and just tossed the laptop back into my backpack. And Abe, no new apps. Indeed, I tend to be brutal about deleting those that I'm not using right now. I'll download, say, the VRBO or Airbnb app when I need them for a trip and then blow them away when I get home. I also just deleted the Clear app. I had a year free from some credit card. And I actually, I've, I've talked about this before. I never used it. So I canceled it before they charged me for another year and deleted the app. Yelp is on the bubble right now for deletion. I find myself using it less and less, just defaulting to Google Maps, restaurant suggestions, and ratings, since I usually already have that app open for directions. The airline carriers' apps continue to improve incrementally. I I used to use an app that had maps of all the major airports, but found I was using it less and less as the carriers added similar maps to their apps. Indeed, while waiting to DePlane in Newark, I checked the United app, and it had an animated step-by-step map showing me the path from our arrival gate through customs to our departure gate. Too bad the guys moving our luggage didn't have the same map. Now, as I've mentioned in past episodes, I still use the free version of TripIt to consolidate all my plane, train, hotel, Airbnb confirmation emails into a single itinerary. Now, I know Google Travel can do something similar if you live within completely within that Google ecosystem, but I don't, so I use TripIt. TripIt keeps pushing their $50 pro offering to me with real-time alerts and airport maps. I had the pro offering once, but now I get all that stuff for free on the carrier apps. Now, if I was going to pop $50, bucks, i would spend it on the Flighty app instead. And I talked about this a few episodes ago. I trialed Flighty back in the spring on a trip to Santa Fe, New Mexico. I thought it was a great app. Indeed, if I was still flying every week, it'd be a no-brainer. Better yet, I'd figure out a way to expense the $250 lifetime membership and just be done with it. But I have to tell you, the one piece of travel kit that's been with me since the beginning and continues to earn its keep a bottle opener. Even as craft beer has moved to cans, that stamped metal New Belgium bottle opener that I got in a tour years ago has saved the corner of many a hotel dresser. <laughs> The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is imbibing for introverts. When frequent travelers are on the road, we spend a lot of time alone in our hotel rooms. And in spite of the advice from a former colleague of mine who wrote a book, Never Eat Alone, we do eat alone a lot. So when I saw an upcoming book about drinking alone, it seemed a perfect fit for the podcast. So I reached out to the author, Jeff Cialetti, editor-in-chief of Craft Spirits magazine. Hey, Jeff, thanks for joining us on the Travel Commons podcast today. Your upcoming book?
1: Technically, the release date is November 15th. I tried to get them early for an event, October 20th, but they got held up on a freight train somewhere in the United States.
0: (laughs) That damn supply chain. So anyhow, your upcoming book, Jeff, is Imbibing for Introverts, a Guide to Social Drinking for the Antisocial. Over the years, uh, the Travel Commons podcast, we've talked many times about solo eating, eating alone on the road, what you might call eating for introverts. So when I saw the title of your book, it just sort of mapped right into things that we've been doing. and. Again, in past episodes, we've talked about what are the best ways to eat alone. And so, kind of, what are your pro tips for the best ways to drink alone?
1: Yeah, it really kind of depends on the venue. It just depends on what your objectives are. Like, if you want to sort of quietly contemplate what you're drinking, you know, if you're in one of these sort of high end whiskey bars or, you know, a brandy bar, or something like that, where, you know, you're sipping and you really want to just contemplate, sometimes you just kind of want to be present, tune a lot of the the background noise out, and just kind of be in your thoughts. Think about what you're drinking. Think about its connection to a point of origin, that kind of thing. You know, when you're drinking alone, probably uh, more often than not, you're going to be sitting at the bar. I mean, a lot of times they're going to they're going to give you a two top, but sometimes I certainly feel bad about taking it up, especially when. If things are busy and, you know, I just want to sit at the bar.
0: When I started traveling, which was a long time ago, you ended up in that same situation. You end up at a two top or a four top and then you're the sad person sitting on the corner table because you were taking up revenue space. Look, I got spots for two and you're only taking up one.
1: Right. And I think that if you're not sitting in a corner, if you do get to sit at the bar, that's a great opportunity um, to strike up a conversation with the bartender. Sometimes it just happens organically. I don't know whether they feel like they, they need to talk to you because you're not with anybody <laughs> and they feel bad for you. But one thing that I do find, though, is when you order something in the, in the way you order, like, you know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. like you're at the bar and you say... Um, give me a gin and tonic. If you don't really specify what gin you want, they may not have a really broad selection, but a lot of these more sort of mixology oriented bars, mm-hmm. they're going to have a selection. And a good way to start that is what kind of gin you have, you have anything that's not particularly juniper forward, that's those sort of questions. just be really primed to sort of geek out with somebody mm-hmm. that they detect may be sort of as passionate about the things they drink as they are or as they are about the things they mix so when you kind of show like an inkling of interest or knowledge related to that spirit or whatever ingredient you you're putting in the cocktail that may pique their interest a little bit and they might get a sense that oh hey um you know this this person knows what you're talking about and i've been in situations where uh, that kind of snowball to a point where like hey by the way i'm entering a cocktail competition this was my creation i want you to try it and tell me honestly what you think about it it's like <laughs> moments like that kind of <laughs> present themselves not always but you know sometimes they do sometimes they'll also have kind of a secret stash behind the bar it could be a rare whiskey that, that's not on mm-hmm. their list sometimes they will sneak you some of that i mean it's not going to necessarily be free but they'll right. they'll give you a pour of something that they're protecting and hoarding and not really <laughs> giving to just anybody So the moments like that are good and and it's not necessarily you're being antisocial. It's sometimes conversations can create themselves organically. And so that's why it's sometimes good to be alone and sit at the bar rather than at a table, because no one's really going to be spending the time with you to do that.
0: Eating alone, sitting at the bar I mean, it used to be you couldn't get much more than a bar snack menu at a bar, and, and nowadays right. you can get a full menu at a bar. And so, I've always gone to eating at the bar. You're right around the, the the bartenders. You get kind of blips of human interaction. I think usually the bartender I find is is good for I don't know three to four quick interchanges. Obviously, they got a job to do, so they're not going to have an ongoing right. conversation with them. But they'll come by, and if they think you're interested or you're an interesting person, you'll get blips. I don't know. It's either A, they think you're interesting, or B, they're taking pity on you. I'm not quite sure which.
1: But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a, certainly an element of that. But, you know, but it's fine. It's They, yeah. they treat you well either way, so that's kind of...
0: That's, that's that's all you're looking for. What drove you to to write this book, Imbibing for Introverts? What was the kernel on this one?
1: I had just been traveling a lot, and I'd been doing a lot of tra- solo travel, especially work-related stuff. And... I, I, over time, I really just kind of got comfortable in my own skin going out alone and it just mm-hmm. became something I realized I actually enjoy my own company, you know, and it it just kind of came together in my head. You know, one time I was just sitting at a bar and I wasn't alone at the time I was doing it. I was was having a drink with a friend in a bar that I, I had often had a drink alone in. And I'm like, you know, I'd really love to do a book about just kind of being an introvert sort of and just enjoying your being by yourself and drinking alone and that you know normalizing that too because some people are just weird about going out alone
0: i think when, when you do a lot of travel and i think you've got to get comfortable with your own company because oftentimes that's it you're you know you've got clients you've got other people you're meeting and they're going home they're going to coach their kids ball game or do whatever and if you don't get out of that hotel room that hotel room turns into a cave after a while and
1: yeah and also sometimes you just want to decompress too especially when you're when it is a work trip and you are having meetings for instance i go to a lot of trade shows where i'm just walking around a convention center going from booth to booth talking to person after person after person always having to be on just having that energy that kind of interpersonal energy that is frankly very exhausting you know <laughs> and you need and you need by the end of the day after like 7 or 8 hours of doing that sometimes you just want to be by yourself and you just want to like quietly sip something You know, a place that's got the music's down low. It's a good mix that they're playing. It's low enough that, you know, you can hear yourself think. You can kind of also eavesdrop on other people's conversations. Mm -hmm. That's kind of fun sometimes. It's like, you know, a lot of people talk about people watching. I'm more of a people listener because (laughs) you can tell a lot more about a person by the conversations you hear than what they're wearing or what they look like.
0: (laughs) Well, Jeff, this has been great. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to reading your book when it comes out. Jeff Cialetti, author of the new book, the upcoming book, coming out in November, Imbibing for Introverts, A Guide to Social Drinking for the Antisocial. Jeff, thanks very much for stopping by the Travel Commons podcast and uh, just chatting to us
1: about drinking. No, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun because this seems to be my people that listen to your podcast.
0: Okay, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 190. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you decide to stay subscribed. Remember that you can find us and listen to the current episodes on all the main podcast sites. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can always ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. At our website travelcommons.com, you can check out the show notes page for transcripts and any of the links that I've mentioned. Or you can also click on the link in this episode's description in your podcast app to get to the show notes page. While you're at TravelCommons.com there's a drop down subscribe menu at the top of each page a set of subscribe links at the bottom and a big red subscribe button in the middle of the home page and across the bottom of each page you can find links to the Travel Commons socials Facebook Twitter and Instagram If you have a story thought comment gripe the voice of the traveler send them along text or audio file to comments c o w m e n t s at TravelCommons.com and Peacock on Twitter the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram page, or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And until we talk again, travel safe. Thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now.